Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Um, we're going to bring in Charlie Hurt, Washington Times opinion editor and Fox News contributor, and Matt Schlapp, chairman of CPAC and also a Fox News political contributor. And gentlemen, come on, uh, come on the line. I, I mean, I, I also want to say to our listeners, uh, we're going to bring in former NSC uh, Chief of Staff Fred Flights in a few moments after our politicos are, are through. But, fellas, there's a report that there's a coup d'etat going on in Russia right now. I mean, it's the darnest thing. You can't make this stuff up. And uh, Putin, I guess he's no fool. He's on an airplane from Moscow to St. Petersburg. I mean, I, th- I thought things were tough in Washington for the Bidens. Think of Putin. <laughs> Someone's got to help him out. Charlie Hurt, what, what is going on? Uh, you guys are following this story? Yeah, no, it's really it's, it's, uh, pretty frightening, actually. Uh, and actually, all the more frightening when you stop and think about the fact that, you know, it, if you remember you know, what, what uh, Donald Trump was working for uh, the entire time he was in office, he was trying to manage that situation and the situation with Putin because mm-hmm. he understood that a desperate Putin was a far more dangerous Putin. Mm-hmm. And so what have we got now? We've got not only a situation where you have, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has been able to go and, and flex his muscles and invade a country, but now he's even more desperate and therefore more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And this is what you get with a with, with somebody like Joe Biden at the helm. Yeah, you know, that's a point. Um, Match slap this. Um, first of all, you have Genny Brigosian, who runs the Wagner Group, which is this private army of mercenaries. He's marching towards Moscow. He was the backbone of the Russian army in the Ukraine, the Russian army terribly ineffectual. But Joe Biden is not going to be able to handle this. I mean, whether Joe Biden, with, even without all this um, criminal racketeering charges that are closing in on, on uh, Biden, I mean, Biden is not the president you want to deal with a foreign policy, foreign relations uh, emergency, or perhaps a catastrophe. Yeah, and this is, look, he's, Biden is our accidental president. We all know that. It was the craziest presidential election ever in the midst of that uh, pandemic. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that we've had good presidents, we've had bad presidents. We've hardly ever had a president, you could say, who's pretty semi with it. Together with a vice president who seems even incapable of reading words off a teleprompter, this is mm. a very, very scary moment. Um, it was one thing when they were pushing the American economy to socialism with people like Susan Rice uh, and uh, and others, you know, having the power behind the president. But now when, when you see where, where we are internationally, it's more troublesome. China has a blank check to do anything it wants. And China's next move is to try to make allegiances with uh, the incoming power structure in Mexico after they've let five million, after we've let five million illegals into our country from all over the world. Mexico is now poised to have an allegiance with China. And at the same time, you know, this is no serious, uh, this is no unserious matter. I mean, this, this Ukraine war could trigger us into a nuclear uh, confrontation. And if Vladimir Putin, Putin feels like he's in a corner. I agree with you, Larry. You know, what is that? What are his options? I don't like what they are. And we don't have a president who can kind of navigate this. The one person who could probably get us out of this is Donald Trump, who's on the sidelines right now. And, uh, you know, I, I would encourage him to uh, do everything he can to try to calm 
Putin in the midst of what is an increasingly perilous situation. Mm, interesting point. Charlie Hurt, given all of these revelations uh, coming back home again, I guess it's, it becomes low politics, but it is domestic politics. Given all the, you know, given what we heard from the whistleblowers, uh, given the WhatsApp communications, given all of the misbehavior of the FBI and the DOJ, what is the impact on this presidential race? I'm trying to figure that out right now because, you know, Donald Trump, they're going after Donald Trump for, uh, for a bunch of documents, for heaven's sakes, whereas the Bidens look like they're in the midst of a criminal racketeering and bribery uh, episode. Well, I think it it uh, it under uh, it, it underscores a lot of the arguments that Trump was making, uh, not only in 2016 when he ran the first time, but but also uh, in 2020, uh, and and it sort of validated a lot of the um, his concerns about how profoundly deeply corrupt the the government is in Washington uh, at at all levels, um, and and I think that this. Uh, and, and it it also underscores the degree to which that government has turned its sights entirely on trying to destroy Donald Trump mm. because it you know views him as a as a real threat. And then and then obviously the the third point being that you know Joe Biden was we those of us like people like you and Matt and me paying attention we. You know, we knew that there were a lot of questions about Joe Biden, and we sort of suspected that he was a pretty corrupt guy. But, um, but you know, the media went in overdrive in the 2020 election to, to conceal all of that, to keep voters from knowing it. And we know that a lot of voters who voted for him wouldn't have voted for him if they'd known how corrupt he is. Mm. Well, now they know how corrupt he is. And, and so I, I feel like all of these things sort of uh, underscore why I – you know, I, I felt pretty confident from the beginning that Trump has a Trump, Trump has a real good pathway to winning re-election if he gets the Republican nomination. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would put him up against Joe Biden any day now, uh, given what we know now, uh, what, what every what everybody knows now um, that they didn't know in 2020. Yeah, Matt Schlapp, I, I got to cut short. Uh, just give me 30 seconds worth on this. I, I, I got to get to Fred Flights for some uh, curbside reporting on this Russian story. Uh, Matt, you need you need a strong guy like Trump right now, not a weak sister like Biden. Yeah, you know, Larry, karma's a bitch. And uh, Joe Biden uh, <laughs> won by 44,000 votes. And I will just say this so you don't get in trouble in the most interesting of circumstances. And uh, for, for I, I understand that everyone's Very trying diplomatic. to answer. We're all tiptoeing around the tulips here about, like, well, maybe Biden is in a corrupt family. Let me be very clear. Joe Biden is our constitutional head of government. The attorney general reports to Joe Biden. There's nothing mm. independent because that statute is no longer on the books. Mm. The, this investigation of Hunter Biden was done under the authority of Merrick Garland, and Merrick Garland didn't make a move without running it by the White House. So the Biden's uh, corruption is now, because this is no longer an investigation, they resolved it. It is now for everyone to see. They only gave him the parking tickets and the jaywalking tickets because all of this whistleblower information was coming out, and they knew that that was the best that they were going to get before they were willing to stall for as many years as it took. This is the most disgusting abuse of power we've seen 
with Merrick Garland acting as Joe Biden's personal attorney and not yes. our attorney general, we can all say that now so we don't have to tiptoe anymore. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The noose is tightening. There's going to be more investigations. The charges will wind up being proven, and um, impeachment is probably on the way. In uh, Joe Biden world, impeachment is the only way you're going to get any justice. Anybody, fellas, I'm sorry to go short. I was going to go much longer with you. Charlie Hurd of the Washington Times, Matt Schlapp of CPAC. Best to mercy, Matt. And, uh, fellas, we'll talk some more over time. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and then bring in former chief of staff of the National Security Council, Fred Flights, and tell us what in God's name is going on. Is there a coup d'etat in Russia? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Please stick around. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are going to try to get our arms around what's going on in Russia. There may be a coup d'etat occurring. Um, Vladimir Putin apparently has uh, gotten on an airplane and left Moscow on his way to St. Petersburg. We're going to bring in a great old friend of mine, Fred Flights. Fred uh, has a long history in national security. During the Trump years, he was chief of staff at the National Security Council. Fred, thank you for doing this on an emergency last-minute basis. Uh, Fred, I am reading from the New York Sun. You are familiar with that online newspaper. Um, Russia scholar and contributor David Satter is reporting, uh, quote, Russia is on the brink. Russia's mercenary army is racing for Moscow. That's Yevgeny Prigozhin and uh, his Wagner group. And they're talking about... uh, the question is whether Russian troops will open fire on Pogrosian's men. Considering the Russian army is totally demoralized, Russians are angry about Putin's conscription programs. Uh, videos from the various republics of Russia, Barashia, Saka, Tuvas, they're all defecting from the Russian army, and um, Putin is in a heap of trouble here. So, Freddie, what can you tell us? What do you know? What do you think's going on here? Larry, it's great to be here. Uh, There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot of theories of what's going on. At a minimum, this is tremendous news for Ukraine and the Ukrainian army. Mm. There were predictions that their counteroffensive was going badly or going very slowly. They may now win now that Russian because Russian military forces are fighting with each other. What we have to see is will Russian military forces, will Russian intelligence forces, paramilitary forces, will they flip and back? The Wagner Group. Now, they have 25,000 troops. We know in the first city that the occupied Russian troops and the Russian people seem to be embracing these mercenaries. So I think in the next 24 to 48 hours, we will see. I mean, the likelihood is that uh, this, I mean, most coups fail, that this will not succeed. Uh, but it is, a, it is a very dangerous situation. And this war is very unpopular. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to see what happens. Yeah, the original reports was that um, the Wagner Group guy, Evgeny Prigozhin, was rebelling against the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shogu, if I'm pronouncing his name right, Fred. But this looks like a, a revolt against Vladimir Putin as well. And it looks like the unpopularity of that war in Russia, inside Russia, with the conscription and whatnot, uh, is going to weigh heavily on this. And so I guess, is this going to be like, um, you, you had this about 20 years ago. Do you remember when uh, Yeltsin 
uh, almost had a coup d'etat with the Duma, and he had to send tanks into the streets and so forth. I mean, what are the reports telling us? Do we know? Well, there are very dangerous signs. We understand that dump trucks have been set up to block access to Moscow. Machine guns have been set up outside of Moscow. Putin and senior officials reportedly have fled Moscow for St. Petersburg. Now, mm. we don't know that those reports are true. They could mm. be, it could be disinformation. We also know that it's hard for information to get around Russia. Whether the Russian people are aware of this, we, we, we don't know that. Uh, but but I, I think that's something that uh, the Ukrainians and this uh, Wagner Group leader is going to be promoting. You know, I'm just reading this again from the New York Sun, which loves to cover Seth Lipsky and company. They love to cover the foreign stories, and they've got people over there. Um, reporter James Brooke is saying, uh, Russia's little-known republics in videos from places like uh, Beriatia, Saka, Tuva, Speakers appeal to their countrymen to defect from the Russian army and to come home and fight for their homeland's independence, okay? Uh, it's like a second front. And, Fred, uh, there was here, this is the October coup of 1993, a constitutional crisis that pitted Boris Yeltsin against the Duma. There was fighting in the streets. Eventually, Yeltsin ordered army tanks to shell the White House, where Duma members had gathered, the tanks prevailed. 147 people died, and the parliamentary revolt, parliamentary revolt failed. Um, it goes on to say the next 48 hours will define the new status of Russia, either a full-fledged civil war or a negotiated transition of power or a temporary respite before the next phase of the downfall of the Putin regime. I mean, the downfall of the Putin. What is the story? You know this. Uh, you ever met this Yevgeny Prigozhin? No, I, I haven't. Huh. And we don't know what's happening. This might be true, but in yeah. warfare, there's a lot of disinformation. We don't know what's going on. But, you know, it is interesting that leaders of these outer Russian republics mm. are called for fighters in, in, in the army to defect because those are the people who are doing the dying. Russia is not conscripting in Moscow. It's conscripting in other republics. Oh. The elite, the, the well-educated in, 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 in Moscow, their children are largely not going to war. It's mm. from the other republics. And, you know, these republics, they're not particularly loyal to Moscow. Huh. That's very interesting. Do you don't suppose this would wind up being a Russian withdrawal from the Ukraine? I think we have to consider that possibility. Look, if, if this leads to a huge win by the Ukrainian army and this attempted coup, even if it fails, it's going to put enormous pressure on Putin. Uh, I mean, we were talking a few weeks ago that Ukraine's going to have to agree to peace talks. It can't possibly win. Russia's going to grind out a war of attrition. Well, maybe that was wrong and that the Russian regime is in, is in serious peril. And, and, and it's, it's just fascinating that the head of the Wagner Group, who is a bloodthirsty mercenary, mm. is telling the truth about this invasion, that it wasn't about demilitarizing Ukraine. It wasn't about denazifying. What an offensive concept. Uh, it was a fraud. So this mm. guy told the truth. I hope the Russian people hear him. So what's Putin's status? What kind of support do you think he has? He's for a former KGB chief. He has, uh, I think, considerable uh, forces behind him to protect him, uh, but 
there, there's a limit to that. If the military turns, if parts of the intelligence service start to turn, mm. and if it's true he left Moscow, that's just an astounding development. Yeah, but again, we, we don't know that that's true. We hear these reports. If, if I was running uh, Ukrainian propaganda, I would certainly put that out, whether, <laughs> whether it was true or not. It seems like he wants to get out of Dodge. That can't be good for Putin. I mean, just the fact that the rumors uh, are out there. What's Joe? The White House has been silent on this, I think. I think that's the right thing to do. I, I think Joe Biden has made a number of statements that haven't helped the situation here. Let's see how this plays out. Look, if if the Wagner Group takes over Russia, that's not a good thing either. They're, mm. they're not in favor of democracy. Mm. They may launch their their own wars of aggression in the future. Uh, you know, so we have to be careful what we wish for here. Well, you can't imagine a worse time to have a worse president than Joe Biden right now. I mean, internally he's getting clobbered. All the corruption charges are coming home to roost. He's mishandled Ukraine from day one anyway. Your point, you know, Fred, your point about uh, the Ukraine, I mean, it looked like a stalemate in Ukraine up until a few moments, <laughs> up until 24 hours ago. Uh, you know what, Fred Flights, stick around. Will you just hang on, stay on the phone? i got to take a quick commercial break. I want to talk some more with you about this. Folks, we're trying to parse through what is going on in Russia. We're going to take a quick break, and then we will come back with my pal Fred Flights from the National Security Council during the Trump administration, former CIA analyst. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and it gives me great pleasure to bring on the show Congresswoman Nancy Mace from the great state of South Carolina. Ms. Mace is a member of the Oversight Committee investigating all of the Joe and Hunter Biden uh, criminality issues. Uh, First of all, Nancy Mace, thank you very much for this. We appreciate it. Larry, thank you for having me on, as always. Appreciate what you do as well to advocate for the truth. Well, thanks. You know, I've been watching you on Fox, and you're a star, and so we're so happy <laughs> to have you. Let Let me just begin with Hunter Biden's sweetheart deal, because I think yeah. that the Justice Department and the FBI thought this would be a kind of close-down bid, but it turns out after the hearings, uh, your oversight committee hearings and Jason Smith's Ways and Means committee hearings with the whistleblowers, that it's a Pandora's box reopening. Absolutely. And when the American people find out the truth, they're going to really feel and see how obscene the behavior is of the executive branch of the DOJ, of the FBI, covering up for Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, all while they cheer on trying to send Donald Trump to prison for life where he can die there. Uh, the hypocrisy in this thing, the corruption at all levels of government. And every time we find evidence, they find a reason to indict Donald Trump. And that's what I'm just scratching my head here. There's so much evidence out there. What the heck has the DOJ and the FBI been doing all these years? Obstructing. Obstructing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, um, their behavior during the Russian collusion stuff was pretty bad, but nothing seems to have changed, Nancy. I mean, there's, they're at it again. They're trying to stop all the oversight work, and your committee, you know, forced them to reveal these 1023 reports. But I don't know. I mean, I had Jim Comer on the show, on the TV show, 
Wednesday, so everything, unclassified documents were redacted anyway. I mean, they're still at it. Yes, they're still stonewalling, and we have to threaten holding them in contempt in order to get the documents. And even when we do, as you said, when when Jamie Comer, Congressman Comer, the chairman of oversight, saw the next 1023 document from the FBI unclassified, more than half of the document was redacted. And you couldn't make sense of it because of all the redactions. And even when we saw the first 1023 form, so much information was redacted, we didn't get the full story. We didn't find out about the tapes until Senator Grassley came out with that information. And when you look at that, it wasn't just $5 million, it was $10 million. That information is corroborated in emails on the Hunter Biden laptop that we were all called conspiracy theorists with. We then come to find out there was a, an investigation by MTS of MTS Telecom and their oligarchy on record on tape also that are talking about having to pay off the Biden family, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Now, two days ago, there's a WhatsApp text with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden threatening, uh, you know, folks in China, communist China, if they don't get their money or else. I mean, this is the, the active behavior of mafia, not a president of the United States. And if it's not illegal, it should be. I can't even imagine why this is being hidden from the American people. It's, it's beyond the pale. Yeah, this is racketeering type stuff. This is mafia-like racketeering mm-hmm. type stuff. Um, it's interesting, Nancy Mace, um, after the whistleblowers revealed the WhatsApp message, so the White House mm-hmm. responded yesterday, the Biden I'm just reading off of Breitbart, but Biden White House changes story from never discussed to not in business with Hunter Biden. Now, that may be subtle, but it's also a very major move. And it's it's covering up all the lies. I mean, every time Joe Biden has talked about Hunter Biden or his business dealings, we come to find out that wasn't the case, that his statements were not true, that they've always been false. And we even saw yesterday um, there was a reporter at the White House that asked one of the spokespeople for the White House about the WhatsApp text, and he left the stage. He wouldn't answer the question. I mean, it's a valid question. What the hell is going on here? And the the president's own spokespeople won't address it. I mean, this is going to be, I believe, a major issue, which is why, Larry, it is so important for Republicans to to tell their friends and the neighbors what's going on, because we need to win the White House in 24. We need to keep the majority of the U.S. House, and we need to flip the Senate because we need to get the you know, truth out there about what is happening, the kind of corruption at all levels of government that is happening in this country, and it's wrong. Yes, yes. Can- Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I go back, um, the Hunter Biden sweetheart deal, but as it turns out, Mm -hmm. I mean, these so-called whistleblowers, so they weren't whistleblowers always. They were senior IRS investigators, right? They were called off Incredible the case. investigators, yeah. Right, all right. These are top-flight senior people. And their testimony before Jason Smith's Ways and Means Committee was incredible to me. Uh, so the Justice Department people, as I guess assistant U.S. attorneys, said, you know, You've got a lot of evidence here, 
but we can't go forward with these investigations because of politics. Now, I think, you know, the WhatsApp message is a big thing, but it also turns out that Merrick Garland's Justice Department was interfering every step of the way. And I don't think that should go by the wayside. That's very important because, um, well, just because it's criminal. It is criminal, and he's denying any involvement. But we on the Oversight Committee need to follow the facts wherever they take us. And regardless of who's in power or who's president, Republican or Democrat, I've been someone who's tried to call the balls and strikes Mm -hmm. every single time, do constitutional things, do the right thing. And, um, you know, the American people can't have faith in government or in our government's institutions with this kind of corruption and this kind of double standard. Just because you're in power, you get to be corrupt. I mean, this is not the American way. It's not the Democratic way. I mean, I'm going to just go back to this. An assistant U.S. attorney Mm -hmm. uh, told these investigators that there was more than enough probable cause from this WhatsApp communication to search the guest house. Right. That's where Hunter Biden was living. And then she said, "Okay, but it'll never work. We'll never get clearance from it. Now, if we're going to look at the Justice Department and Merrick Garland's role, I mean, it seems to me this kind of evidence is absolutely crucial. There is a double standard. There's a triple standard. I mean, it's just pure politics. It is the politicalization. It is the weaponization of the uh, Mm -hmm. DOJ. Right. I mean, this is the DOJ and the FBI that says, hey, we're going to raid a former president's home over documents we know he has. We've seen the boxes, been in the rooms, and yet won't go and raid, you know, Joe Biden's home where there are classified documents, where there is evidence of this kind of corruption happening between Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and other Biden family members. It's a complete and total double standard. And meanwhile, you know, the Russia collusion hoax that was brought on by the DOJ and FBI, I want to know who in those agencies allowed that to move forward. Who gave them permission to use that, use campaign material paid for by the Clinton campaign? I mean, I just, I am beside myself that this is the kind of thing that's happening. And I come there from a very purple district, very independent-minded district, Hmm. and I'm hearing from independents and centrists all over the place that this is corruption, that it's wrong, and they want it fixed. And we have to have the ability, the subpoena power to go in there and call folks from the DOJ, from the FBI, to Congress, to the Oversight Committee. And if they don't show up, we're gonna hold, we've got to hold them in contempt. I mean, that is their only tool in the toolbox right now to get this information because besides Fox News, no one is no one is investigating this. It used to be, Larry, as you know, the media would do all these investigations. The media would bring this corruption forward. And they have they don't they won't do that anymore because the media has been weaponized and politicized. The DOJ has been weaponized, the executive branch been weaponized to be utilized against your political enemies. That is the state of our nation today and it's scary. Just on that point, um so <clears throat> that the the Trump Russian hoax stuff, that was uh whole cloth lies, Hillary Clinton's mm-hmm. campaign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This time around, Nancy Mays, is completely different. You're talking about, for example, on oversight, you you all looked at these uh, Treasury's suspicious reports. Now, mm-hmm. that's not campaign stuff. 
That's from the U.S. Treasury Department. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and so, so this is com- a completely different story. This isn't just speculation. This isn't just campaigning. This isn't just a couple of, uh, you know, criminals in the campaign. This is from the U.S. Treasury Department, suspicious reports. I mean, I, I think right there, all the red flags have to go up. And what's so what's so crazy about that, you know, when we, when we got access to the Treasury, that very day, Donald Trump got indicted by Alvin Bragg. And when we got into the Treasury Department to see, we only pulled the suspicious activity reports for two of the Biden's family members. Now, one suspicious activity report in your lifetime would be extremely rare. But between um, Hunter Biden and, and Joe Biden's brother, James, there were over 170 suspicious activity reports. Then we mm. come to find out it's not just two Biden family members. It's up to nine grandchildren, current wives, ex-wives. <laughs> you know, not, I mean, it's just so crazy. They weren't registered as foreign agents. There was no the, the money wasn't seed money unless it was seed money to fund Joe Biden's lifestyle. That's what it was about. And you read the information in there, and then you corroborate it with the laptop and the emails and the text messages. And you see this layering going on, which is racketeering, which is RICO, which is money laundering. Uh, there were prostitution rings, like all these crazy things that come to find out. There's been alleged that Hunter Biden's writing those things off on his doctor returns too, maybe. But it's just wild to me. And then the day we get access to our first 1023 form, the redactions that were made um, in order to obfuscate the truth and obfuscate our investigation to stonewall us. You know, Trump obviously gets indicted once again. I don't know what they're going to do when they when we get our hands on the tapes. Like, what? I don't know what's next. Um, Nancy, but it's Nancy, wild the, to me that this is what's are, happening. There are more Bidens than we ever dreamed possible in these LLCs. I didn't know there were that many. Yeah, <laughs> oh, so many. I mean, and it's not just like 20 LLCs. Like, we now have to, you know, involve um, – you know, foreign countries to be able to get some bank records from foreign countries. There are more SARS reports. I want to go back to the Treasury and compare the, the information we now have from these multiple 1023 forms versus what was in the SARS reports versus what's in the bank records. It's complicated stuff, and it's complex, and they meant to do it that way. So, you know, in the FBI documents we saw, they were bragging about, the Ukrainians were bragging about it would take the U.S. government 10 years to find and yes. follow the money. Bragging about how complex this network of LLCs was. Nancy Mays, can can we take a quick break and and come back? I want to talk about the Burisma oligarch side of the story. You got a few more minutes for us? Yes, sure. You're spectacular. We're talking to Nancy Mays, Congresswoman from South Carolina, uh, member of the Oversight Committee. Much more coming on this story. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after a short break. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. If the continuing failure of Bidenomics, high inflation, tax hikes, and virtual recession, has you thinking about diversifying your portfolio with gold or silver, I suggest calling my friends at Swiss America, the trusted leader in precious metals for 40 years. Plus, silver is in high demand for military, solar, electric cars, and tech. And they want to help you get started by offering a beautiful U.S. silver walk-in Liberty half dollars at the amazingly low price of $13.50 each delivered, limit 250 per customer while supplies last. To reserve your silver coins, call or just text 800-254-5904 or visit SwissAmerica.com slash Larry. That's silver walking liberty half dollars 
for just thirteen fifty each delivered to your door while supplies last. Help protect your assets today. Mention Larry when you call or text 800-254-5904 or visit SwissAmerica.com slash Larry. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell and MyPillow are launching the new MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything. But now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes MyPillow even better. We just received ours and my entire family absolutely loves this new design. The MyPillow 2.0 still has the patented adjustable fill and now has a brand new fabric made with a temperature regulating thread. It's the softest, coolest pillow you ever own. Everyone wants to know the restful night of sleep secret. Well, no more tossing, turning, and flipping your pillow over to get it nice and cool. And right now, buy one, get one free using code 1234. Temperature regulating technology made in the USA comes with a 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, buy one, get one free, use code 1234, call 800-887-2185 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking to Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, member of the Oversight Committee investigating uh, Joe and Hunter Biden's and their various misdeeds. Nancy, thank you for this uh, extended period. Can I? Re- I want to go back to this whole business about the 17 tapes from the Burisma oligarch telephone conversations, two of which were with Joe Biden, allegedly, this is the bribery scandal, uh, 15 mm-hmm. of which were with Hunter Biden. Nobody can find this guy. He's on the lamp. I'm sure he's not in the Ukraine, by the way. Nobody in their right mind would be in the Ukraine, unfortunately, right now. Mm-hmm. Lord knows where mm-hmm. he is in Eastern Europe. Um, somebody said he's at the gambling casino in Montenegro. Anyway, <laughs> what can you? T- that was a joke. Good, you have a sense of humor. I knew you would. Yeah. Anyway, um, here's the thing. What? What is you and the committee, Jamie Comer, and so forth? What are you going to do about this? Um, he was on the show. I guess it was Wednesday night, and he said, "Well, you know, we may go after him uh, overseas. Uh, we can. We will. We may have already started to go after him. I mean, I think those tapes are going to be very important, don't you?" They are. And the fact that Senator Grassley knew about them, knew that they were redacted from the documentation that the Oversight Committee received was very helpful, but also speaks volumes about the corruption in our federal agencies trying to hide this information from investigators on oversight, from the American people, because it's an unclassified document. Um, We need to get our hands on those tapes. And as I mentioned earlier before the break, there are things that we're going to need to do and get assistance overseas in foreign countries to also verify some of this information, whether it's bank records or tape recordings or um, different deals that were done, et cetera, 
there is some work and that takes a little bit of time. And, you know, it's frustrating for us because we want it right now where, you know, we, we want to show the American people what was truly going on because the media won't do the investigation. The DOJ sure as heck won't do it. So we've got to do the work for them. And um, and so we're working very hard. I am grateful for Congressman Comer's leadership and the staff on oversight that are helping to expedite all of the things that we have to do to conduct this investigation. It also costs money to do some of these things as well. And we're moving at the fastest pace that we can. Um, but obviously, it's not fast enough for those of us that want to get to the truth. Well, um, you, do you need the tapes? You, I, I'm assuming you need these tapes uh, for the bribery charge. Well, bank records, I believe, would show would show that as well. So there are more bank records that we have to subpoena. There'll be bank records overseas we're going to want to get our hands on. Mm. Um, and if you we look at and compare the SARS reports with the bank records, with the LLCs, and connect the dots, you can do it without the tapes. But I, in order to, to convince the mainstream media, I think they're going to have to hear it with their own ears, right, mm. and see it with their own eyes, whether it's text messages. I mean, they've, they've seen text messages and emails, and they won't ask Joe Biden the questions, right? They won't do the work. They won't do the lifting that's necessary to get to the truth. But I think we need to pull out all the stops and show as much evidence as we can to convince the American people that this is what was really going on. And evidence is a good thing. It's sunlight. Shining sunlight is the best medicine. Yes, absolutely. The greatest disinfectant. So as the investigation is pursued, uh, does this end up with an impeachment charge? Well, I believe, you know, depending on what charges are referred to the DOJ, what the evidence looks like, I, I believe that depending on if this is the most corrupt administration in U.S. history, then I believe you're going to be looking at impeachment charges that are drawn up. But there has to be an investigation. There has to be hearings. It has to come out of committee. There is a constitutional process we have to follow to provide for due process because we've got to be better than the other side. Mm. You know, we don't just impeach mm. on a whim. Um, mm. We have to have evidence. We have to have due process. There has to be a real investigation, real hearings, and the real truth out there. We don't want to obfuscate or lie to the American people, as has been done in the past, um, with the other side, with the left. We want to do it the right way. Um, in order to rebuild that trust with the American people. No, I like that very much. I like that whole attitude you just walked through. I like that very much. We have to do it better than the other side. But I just yep. think, you know, my concern, uh, Nancy Mace, my concern is, you know, in Joe Biden world, his DOJ, the court system will never produce justice. Only Congress can produce justice on this. Mm -hmm. and, that, be, and that may be, be the case. I may be too hard on it, you know, but just judging from the cover-ups and the terrible behavior of the FBI and the DOJ, I just think that you all in the House are going to have to do it. And we, But to do it, we have to show the evidence, and that is the most important part to it because we don't want to appear political. We don't want to appear that we have tried to politicize the process or weaponize the process because our standard has to be a higher and better standard than the left who will consistently lie. I mean, I was in I was in the chamber a few nights ago when Adam Schiff was censored. Mm -hmm. And to say that, that what I saw and heard was obscene would be an understatement. Here is a group of people who are cheering on a guy who lied to the American people about Russian collusion, who who lied and leaked classified intel 
intelligence from the Intel Committee, who had to be booted off the Intel Committee, who had to be censured for that, cheering him on, saying what a great American hero he was. And yet they're trying to put away you know, a former president for having documents he did not leak into prison for the rest of his life. And and so we have to be better. Our standards have to be better and higher and more in order to to show that we can be trusted and we can rebuild that trust in our institutions, whether that's Congress, the DOJ, et cetera. And we got to do it fast, Larry, because we're going to run out of time before we know it. Absolutely. Uh, last minute, Nancy, what happens this coming week? What happens with these 1023 documents? What's the next step for the Oversight Committee? Well, Congress is in recess for the next two weeks. We're back in our districts, but the Oversight Committee and its staff and, and Chairman Comer are working around the clock to get access to more bank records, to get access to more 1023s. Mm-hmm. So far, the second 1023 document has only been viewed by the chairman and maybe the ranking member. The rest of the Oversight Committee members also need to put eyes on it, but also we need an unredacted form. We need yes. to see all the information. So there's more subpoenas that have to go out, more records we have to gather, and connecting the dots. Nancy Mays, thank you ever so much. We are most grateful. We appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk some politics with uh, Charlie Hurt of the Washington Times and Matt Schlapp of uh, American Conservative Union. I'm Kudlow. Much more cooking today. We're also going to get to this Russian coup d'etat business. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are going to try to get our arms around what's going on in Russia. There may be a coup d'etat occurring. Um, Vladimir Putin apparently has uh, gotten on an airplane and left Moscow on his way to St. Petersburg. We're going to bring in a great old friend of mine, Fred Flights. Fred uh, has a long history in national security. During the Trump years, he was chief of staff at the National Security Council. Fred, thank you for doing this on an emergency last-minute basis. Uh, Fred, I am reading from the New York Sun. You are familiar with that online newspaper. Um, Russia scholar and contributor David Satter is reporting, uh, quote, Russia is on the brink. Russia's mercenary army is racing for Moscow. That's Yevgeny Prigozhin and uh, his Wagner group. And they're talking about uh, the question is whether Russian troops will open fire on Pogrosian's men. Considering the Russian army is totally demoralized, Russians are angry about Putin's conscription programs. Uh, videos from the various republics of Russia, Barashia, Saka, Tuvas, they're all defecting from the Russian army. And um, Putin is in a heap of trouble here. So, Freddie, what can you tell us? What do you know? What do you think's going on here? Larry, it's great to be here. Uh, there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot of theories of what's going on. At a minimum, this is tremendous news for Ukraine and the Ukrainian army. Hmm. There were predictions that their counteroffensive was going badly or going very slowly. They may now win now that Russian because Russian military forces are fighting with each other. What we have to see is will Russian military forces, will Russian intelligence forces, paramilitary forces, will they flip and back the Wagner group? Now, they have 25,000 troops. We know in the first city that the occupied Russian troops and the Russian people seem to be embracing these mercenaries. So I think in the next 24 to 48 hours, we will see. I mean, the likelihood is that 
this, I mean, most coups fail, that this will not succeed. Uh, but it's a, it is a very dangerous situation. And this war is very unpopular. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to see what happens. Yeah, the original reports was that um, the Wagner Group guy, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was rebelling against the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shogu, if I'm pronouncing his name right, Fred. But this looks like a, a revolt against Vladimir Putin as well. And it looks like the unpopularity of that war in Russia, inside Russia, with the conscription and whatnot, uh, is going to weigh heavily on this. And so I guess, is this going to be like, um, you, you had this about 20 years ago. Do you remember when uh, Yeltsin uh, almost had a coup d'etat with the Duma and he had to send tanks into the streets and so forth? I mean, what are the reports telling us? Do we know? Well, there are very dangerous signs. We understand that dump trucks have been set up to block access to Moscow. Machine guns have been set up outside of Moscow. Putin and senior officials reportedly have fled Moscow for St. Petersburg. Now, mm. we don't know that those reports are true. They could, mm. It could be disinformation. We also know that it's hard for information to get around Russia. Whether the Russian people are aware of this, we, we, we don't know that. Uh, but but I, I think that's something that uh, the Ukrainians and this uh, Wagner Group leader is going to be promoting. You know, I'm just reading this again from the New York Sun, which loves to cover Seth Lipsky and company. They love to cover the foreign stories, and they've got people over there. Um, reporter James Brooke is saying, uh, Russia's little-known republics in videos from places like uh, Beriatia, Saka, Tuva, Speakers appeal to their countrymen to defect from the Russian army and to come home and fight for their homeland's independence, okay? Uh, it's like a second front. And, Fred, uh, there was here, this is the October coup of 1993, a constitutional crisis that pitted Boris Yeltsin against the Duma. There was fighting in the streets. Eventually, Yeltsin ordered army tanks to shell the White House, where Duma members had gathered, the tanks prevailed. 147 people died, and the parliamentary revolt, parliamentary revolt failed. Um, it goes on to say the next 48 hours will define the new status of Russia, either a full-fledged civil war or a negotiated transition of power or a temporary respite before the next phase of the downfall of the Putin regime. I mean, the downfall of the Putin. What is the story? You know this. Uh, you ever met this Yevgeny Prigozhin? No, I, I haven't. Huh. And we don't know what's happening. This might be true, but in yeah. warfare, there's a lot of disinformation. We don't know what's going on. But, you know, it is interesting that leaders of these outer Russian republics mm. are called for fighters in, in, in the army to defect because those are the people who are doing the dying. Russia is not conscripting in Moscow. It's conscripting in other republics. Oh. The elite, the, the well-educated in, 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 in Moscow, their children are largely not going to war. It's mm. from the other republics. And, you know, these republics, they're not particularly loyal to Moscow. Huh. That's very interesting. Do you don't suppose this would wind up being a Russian withdrawal from the Ukraine? I think we have to consider that possibility. Look, if, if this leads to a huge win by the Ukrainian army and this attempted coup, even if it fails, it's going to put enormous pressure on Putin. 
Uh, I mean, we were talking a few weeks ago that Ukraine's going to have to agree to peace talks. It can't possibly win. Russia's going to grind out a war of attrition. Well, maybe that was wrong and that the Russian regime is in, is in serious peril. And, and, and it's, it's just fascinating that the head of the Wagner Group, who is a bloodthirsty mercenary, mm. is telling the truth about this invasion, that it wasn't about demilitarizing Ukraine. It wasn't about denazifying. What an offensive concept. Uh, it was a fraud. So this mm. guy told the truth. I hope the Russian people hear him. So what's Putin's status? What kind of support do you think he has? He's for a former KGB chief. He has, uh, I think, considerable uh, forces behind him to protect him. Uh, but there, there's a limit to that. If the military turns, if parts of the intelligence service start to turn, mm. and if it's true he left Moscow, that's just an astounding development. Yeah, but again, we, we don't know that that's true. We hear these reports. If, if I was running uh, Ukrainian propaganda, I would certainly put that out, whether, <laughs> whether it was true or not. It seems like he wants to get out of Dodge. That can't be good for Putin. I mean, just the fact that the rumors uh, are out there. What's Joe? The White House has been silent on this, I think. I think that's the right thing to do. I I think Joe Biden has made a number of statements that haven't helped the situation here. Let's see how this plays out. Look, if if the Wagner Group takes over Russia, that's not a good thing either. They're they're not in favor of democracy. They may launch their their own wars of aggression in the future. Uh, You know, so we have to be careful what we wish for here. Well, you can't imagine a worse time to have a worse president than Joe Biden right now. I mean, internally, he's getting clobbered. All the corruption charges are coming home to roost. He's mishandled Ukraine from day one anyway. Your point, you know, Fred, your point about uh, the Ukraine, I mean, it looked like a stalemate in Ukraine up until a few moments, <laughs> up until 24 hours ago. Uh, you know what, Fred Flights, stick around. Will you just hang on, stay on the phone? i got to take a quick commercial break. I want to talk some more with you about this. Folks, we're trying to parse through what is going on in Russia. We're going to take a quick break, and then we will come back with my pal Fred Flights from the National Security Council during the Trump administration, former CIA analyst. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm talking with Fred Flights. Former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council. We're talking about the news of, regarding Russia, whether it's a coup d'etat, whether it's a revolt. The uh, so-called mercenaries, the Wagner, Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who himself is a thug. His private army is, they've, I guess, Fred, they've taken one town south of Moscow. Now, I'm reading uh, the Wall Street Journal is saying... Uh, Russian aircraft was bombing these um, Wagner troops. I don't know if you saw that. I did, and it, it 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 it's really amazing to see that these two Russian military forces are fighting against each other. And and the root of this is that uh, the Wagner group was frustrated that it wasn't getting the ammunition and support it needed to fight its battles, and the Russian military was upset that the Wagner group wasn't winning. So they've been feuding for some time, and uh, the head of the group just got so frustrated, uh, he decided to rebel. And, uh, you know, the initial reports look like there's popular support for this rebellion, but these are very early reports. We don't know whether this is going to be the trend. 
Um, they keep saying his private army of 25,000. Does that number strike you as right, or is it larger, that, or is it smaller? Number, that's the number that we're hearing, but he's trying to get uh, Russian troops to defect. So if he's succeeding, he could have a larger number. And, and uh, the head of this group is a, a very well-respected general. There, there will be uh, officers and, and, and soldiers in the Russian army who will follow him. Who's this, Prigozhin? Prigozhin. And he was a Russian general? He's a Russian general. He's very close to Putin. And, and the fact that Putin had to turn to a, a mercenary army because his uh, incompetent military was losing just says a lot about the state of the Russian military and just the judgment of Putin and his senior officials that they sent an army that wasn't capable of fighting this war into battle. Huh, boy, that is something. Um, what if, I mean, so what happens? Russian army people could defect on the road to Moscow? Is that what we're thinking? Well, there are reports of Russian army, uh, Russian soldiers uh, coming to um, the Wagner Group in Rostov. And the Rostov is the headquarters of Russian military operations in southern Ukraine. That's where the war is right now. So it has oh. huge implications for the war effort in, 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 a, in, a, in, in a counteroffensive that the Ukrainians were sort of expected not to do too well. They may have made some limited gains. They need to take out this land bridge between Crimea and Russia. If they did that, it could have enormous implications for whether Putin could continue the war. And given the, this development, maybe that's going to happen. Wait a second. Walk me through that again. There is a land bridge between Russia and Crimea, right? That's down yes. south. And you're saying what? Well, that is the, that's the battle in this counteroffensive. Uh, if Crimea is cut off, the Russians can't provide it with troops. They can't provide it with supplies. It will be difficult for Russia to hold Crimea. Hmm. And that's why the Russians are dug in so heavily in areas of this land bridge with, with landmines and, and fortifications. And the expectation was that the Russians were going to hold it. They're going to lose some territory, but they would keep that land bridge. But with the headquarters going down, with this rebellion, and you can imagine what this will do for the morale of Russian troops in the region, it, it's a huge boost for the Ukrainians. Does the Ukrainians have air power that could um, take out the Russian troops around this bridge? The, 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 no, the, the Russians still have air superiority. The, the, mm. the Ukrainians have missiles, uh, but that's a big problem. When you're trying to uh, fight against a dug-in enemy and you don't have air power, that, that's a problem. So th come back to me on this uh, Russov military base business. That's a, like a, a, a command and control operation? Rostov is, Rostov. and there's a longer name for it, I, I'm, I, I, I don't know, know the full name. Rostov is the headquarters for the Russian Army's operation in southern Ukraine. And that's where, that's the focus of the fighting right now, the fighting to take back this land bridge that Russia established between Russia and Crimea. So the Wagner Group troops have taken Rostov. Yes. Apparently, they've taken the city hall. They've taken everything. They've taken the city. They may have taken other cities, but you know we, we don't we don't know just yet. Now, uh, Wagner Group forces are not fighting against uh, uh, the Ukrainian army right now in this counteroffensive. They pulled back some time ago. So, 
the effect of this will be the command and control of the forces that are trying to, to withstand the counteroffensive in this land bridge and whether there's going to be more defections. Uh, there, so there are, uh, I'm going to assume there are plenty of Russian generals and colonels in Rostov, and they may have been taken hostage or what? That wouldn't be surprising. But, you know, the, uh, you know this is mutiny. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you're going to play the game of mutiny, you're really putting your, taking your life in your own hands because, uh, you know, if the coup fails, you're dead. Mm-hmm. So th- these people are going to have to make uh, some uh, very grave decisions on, on who to follow here. Do they have uh, – does this Wagner army have air power? I don't think so. Yeah. I haven't read that any place yet, but I don't know. I don't know anything. Well, they have tanks. They have artillery. Right. Uh, I, 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 I don't know that they, whether they have air power. And we, we don't know where Putin is. We don't know if he got to St. Petersburg. We don't really know if he left Moscow. The presumption, you know, he addressed Russia. Uh, I don't know what was in that dress because there's not enough time in between segments for me to figure out. I'm just, here's the New York Times. Russia in crisis as mercenary revolt threatens Putin. Kremlin mobilizes forces against group leader who has claimed southern city. Here's what we know about Russia. I mean, I don't know if the New York Times coverage is is any good or not. Whoops, I'm moving away from the microphone because my computer is away. Hold on a second. I'm moving the mic closer. The Wagner chief's broadside against the Russian military establishment has escalated tensions drastically, but it isn't yet clear how much of a threat the situation poses to the Kremlin. So that's your point, Fred. We don't we don't have enough information yet. And, and I expect that a lot of the reports we're hearing are wrong. If it's true that Putin fled Moscow, uh, that will have an enormous effect on morale and his ability to lead. That's the wrong thing to move in a situation like this. That suggests that his hold on power uh, is seriously being threatened. Uh, that, that, that could mean his downfall is coming. Huh. And if his downfall comes, who takes over? That's a real problem. If, I mean, if General the Jack- group takes control of, of, of Russia, oh uh, we, are, we are not going to have we, – we could have a country that's even more hostile to the United States than what we have right now. Well, that's an interesting point. You know, months ago – I remember talking to General Jack Keane, who we, we tried to get him, but he's on Fox News broadcasting right now. But um, uh, General Keane told me that uh, it's like after Putin, the next five guys are worse than Putin, and they will be more hostile to the United States. In other words, they're even hawkier than, uh, than Putin is. Yeah, I, I've heard that, too. My colleague, General Keith Kellogg, with the America First Policy Institute, uh, he's been warning we have to be careful what we wish for. And yeah. it, let's say something really bizarre happens and that these Russian republics decide to break away and br- Russia breaks up. That's not a good thing either. What happens to Russia's arsenal? Will we have a bunch of mini Putins uh, uh, across um, you know, the, form, the former nation of, of, of Russia? You, you know, there are a lot of bad developments here. How will China cash in if Russia starts to break up? Yeah, you know, Fred, our former boss Trump was right to try to, you know, Trump talking about a negotiated peace. I mean, he said 24 hours, but putting that aside, um, 
this is a bad story all around, and it's an unstable story. And Russia does have all these nuclear weapons, and who knows what could possibly happen here. And we could talk forever about, you know, Biden's policies. Did Biden give them enough weapons? Did the weapons come in soon enough? A lot of people, including Jack Keane, felt that uh, Biden was late to the party. He was always, you know, a day late and a dollar short. Uh, it's just a highly unstable situation. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's right. But President, President Trump was exactly right. We need a negotiated settlement here. We have to stop the killing. I, I don't think Ukraine will win. A, a, a long war of attrition. Now, we may be in a different situation now where it's possible that Russia is going to fall or will have to withdraw from Ukraine because of this internal fighting. But uh, I think that as unjust as Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, uh, putting up with a, a long-term war of attrition that lasts years and utterly destroys the country of Ukraine, that's not the right outcome. That's not the moral outcome either. I think that's where President Trump is. Yeah, and, and of course, um, financially, pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into this story uh, makes it even harder. I mean, they're just, you know, the support's not there for it in the House. I don't think the support's there for it in the country. Uh, I, I, you know, you, you want democracy and you want freedom, but you have to have a certain amount of what I would call Kissinger-type realism here, don't you? I mean, you have to look at it. Ukraine's not going to get the Russians out. I mean, it's just not going to happen now. Maybe if 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 every, if Russian forces withdraw because of this Wagner Group business, I mean, maybe that's a different ball game. I don't know. I'll give you the last well, word, Fred Flight. I I don't agree with Kissinger uh, very often, but I think on <laughs> Russia he's right, and yeah. I think on China he's right that we have to have dialogue with heads of state of our adversaries. That's something this administration doesn't seem to understand. No, I get it. Anyway, Fred Flights, thank you so much. We appreciate your time and your help. We'll watch this as it plays out, folks. Uh, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, it all seems mundane right now, but I did want to talk to the most eminent Federal Reserve scholar I know, and that's John Taylor from the Hoover Institute out at Stanford. Uh, Is the Federal Reserve going to destroy our economy in the name of fighting inflation? I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a break, and we will come back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to leave the Russian story, and we're going to come back home to the Federal Reserve story. The single best monetary and Fed scholar I know, John Taylor, Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University Professor of Economics, author of many books and Lord knows how many articles. First of all, John Taylor, how are you, my friend? It's been a while. It has been a while. It's great to be back. And I'm glad you're talking about these important issues, Larry. It's great. (laughs) Holy cow. So, John, um, uh, Jay Powell testified this week before Congress and... um, you know, sounded pretty tough on inflation. And I wanted to get your take on the inflation story. The top line number has obviously come down quite a bit. Uh, the core inflation rate is, looks very sticky. It's somewhere around 5%. And I wanted to first, let's start with your assessment of the inflation story and perhaps the economy as well. 
Sure. Larry, I think the first thing that people tend to forget, you didn't mention it, is the Fed got behind the curve quite a bit uh, mm. for the last couple of years. They were at a half a percent, and they should have been higher, and they, they've moved up a lot, and that's been good. There's no question about it. I think it's more to what they should be doing. Now, the question is whether they should go any further. I, I think a little bit further would be good, but uh, they paused recently, as you just mentioned, and hopefully they'll continue uh, if it's necessary. But I think, you know, I, I favor rules, strategies, and uh, by that measure, they're, they're closer than they were. Uh, a year and a half ago, but they're not quite there all the way. John, what's the um, operable Taylor rule telling you right now? It's about 6% right now. It's rather than five and a quarter, so a little bit more. Uh, but it's been that, you know, inflation has come down, as you say, and I think that's to some extent because the Fed has begun to move. But they, we wanted to get the two. Two is their target. They talk about two all the time. Two is more global. And so we want to get to two, and we're not quite there just yet. How um, how sticky is this core inflation going to be? You know, it doesn't need to be that sticky. I think the main thing that we've learned over the years by thinking of monetary policy in the U.S. and, and in other countries is that if they indicate that their their goal is two, and they don't vary about that, there's been discussion about moving it, that People become convinced, and that's where it's going to go. And I think there'll be there'll be very much of a of a less of impact on the economy. That's certainly what we hope. That's what uh, could be achieved as well. You think there's a soft landing in the cards, or do you think there's a recession in the cards? I, I think there's a, a soft landing uh, for sure. If they do it a little bit, I think that they do, need to do a little bit more. But here you have to think about the global situation. You know, the U.K. is uh, a problem, the ECB is a problem, Latin America is a problem. And to some extent, I think the Fed's slowness uh, over the last couple of years has led to slowness elsewhere. This, it's a global thing. And so I'm a little worried about the other countries, but less about the U.S. I think if we stick to the goal, which is a little bit more, that's, that's gone from 25 basis points to 5.25, that's a good chunk. But a little bit more would be safer. And um, what indicators are you looking at? I mean, for folks listening to this, uh, I mean, you've got a, a very deeply inverted yield curve. Um, there are yield curve models that show, you know, inversion leads to a higher probability of recession. Uh, commodity indexes tend to look soft, John. Uh, money supply M2 growth is is very, very weak. I, I don't know how significant or important that is nowadays. I mean, what should we be looking at? Well, I hate to say this, but you know this so-called Taylor rule, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, has proved to be pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's exactly where they should be, but a year and a half ago they were way below that. People like me were screaming, got to move, and they moved. And now they're closer, and if you look at history, not just the U.S., but other countries as well, the, the, the degree that they can stay close to better. Now, the exchange rate's important. The exchange rate's not, not so important right now, but it's important. That's got to be part of the factor. But that suggests, you know, a little over 5%, maybe 6% right now, given inflation rates, 4%, as you mentioned. If you go to 6 um, what's the impact on the medium and longer-term rates? It'll be a, a little bit of an impact, but I think if they go to, to three-quarters of a percentage point, 
it'll be convincing. I, I was a little disappointed they didn't move, as you mentioned uh, recently. I think if they just continued in a more deliberative way, it'd be more convincing. This has led to a little confusion. At the same time, Powell has indicated, don't worry, we're going to move later. So I think that that expectation is still there. And I don't think we need to have – this is something which we've learned. As long as we're deliberative and the Fed is clear what it's, about, uh, what it's all about, it's better. I, I think the fact that they got off quite substantially a year and a half ago, two years ago, has been a disadvantage, but they've made up a lot of that. And I think that's a, that's a good prognosis for the future. Um, the jobs market is holding up remarkably well. Do you think it will continue? I think that will continue. I, I mean, there's going to be a, a bit of a slowdown. You're right. It's it's quite good. But here's where I think you need to mention the other policies you hinted at, fiscal mm-hmm. policy, regulatory policy, our international policy. I think that the extent that they are supplementing, they're part of the overall equation. I've always argued it's not just monetary policy, fiscal policy. And don't forget regulatory policy. That's that's what you focused on a lot, Larry. And I think that's an important part of the ingredient. It's, it's not just monetary policy. It's fiscal, regulatory, and, and our international policy as well. Yeah, I mean, the regulatory stuff has been very punitive, and it's probably yes. held back growth. I mean, there's good growth and there's bad growth, right? Bad growth is when you're overstimulating fiscal and monetary policy. Good growth is when you're employing supply-side policies, such as lighter regulations or lower tax rates. Um, I'd like to see some good growth, but I'm not seeing that from this administration. No, the growth rate is much lower than that the United States is capable of at this point. That's for sure, 1%. We could have 3%, but for that, I think you do need to think about the regulatory side, as you mentioned. Um, and it's a, it's a whole ramification of different kinds of policies. Let's not forget about monetary policy. That's been the focus of the conversation here. But, mm-hmm. but we need to supplement that with a more responsible fiscal policy and regulatory policy, which I think is very important as well. All right. Nobody does it better than my friend John Taylor. John, thank you ever so much. We appreciate you checking in. Great report. Folks, we're going to take a break. And we're going to do some stock market work on the other side of the break. And we're trying to keep an eye on Russia and get as much information as we can. I'm Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We'll be back in just a few. Please stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're broadcasting from the East Coast. We're not in Russia. I'd like to know more about Russia. Maybe our maybe our investment strategists know about Russia. We're going to talk to we're talking to Stephanie Link, chief investment strategist of High Tower Advisors. Head of Investment Solutions. We got Jim LeCamp, uh, Senior VP for Investments at Morgan Stanley. I'm Larry Kudlow. Stephanie Link, um, what's go- is there a coup d'etat in Russia? Could affect the stock market, you know. Well, it certainly could. It's another <laughs> unknown that you know is adding adding up. Um, I was I was just um, going through all of the things that we've ticked off in terms of the unknowns, uh, the negatives, uh, the <laughs> debt ceiling, the bank crisis for now. The Fed, there's still a question mark, but at least you know we're probably in the eighth or the ninth inning. And as a result, 
the market has actually broadened out uh, over the last couple of weeks, which has been encouraging. But then now you add this piece of unknown news, and it certainly is going to be a, a cloud. Um, it's certainly going to affect commodity prices for sure, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll have to just kind of wait and see. But um, you know, it's disappointing. Um, but uh, but I you know I'm, I'm trying to focus on other things, fundamentals, for example, of the economy. Not oh. perfect. Oh. Not perfect, Larry, Funda- as you know. Fundamentals but... of the economy. Imagine that. Imagine that. Right? I spent a couple I, hours. I'm reporting on Russia and impeachment, <laughs> and that's what we love about Stephanie. She just keeps her focus on the economic fundamentals. I'm trying to make us all some money, um, and so I'm focusing on <laughs> the, the resilient consumer, right? I mean, and we know the job market still pretty healthy. Retail sales, housing is absolutely back from 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 the the, the recession it saw last year. Autos is better. Manufacturing is mixed, Larry. I'm not going to try to, 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 to sugarcoat that. But if you have uh, a company that is focused on onshoring, that's real. And that's, that's huge momentum. Every company I talk to. So while the PMI stink, the onshoring part is real. And overall, I look at the Atlanta Fed GDP now, and it's running at about 2% for the quarter, that's not recession. And everybody's obsessed with recession. So just trying to take advantage of these crummy weeks that we just had to look for opportunities. Well, by the way, <clears throat> interestingly, uh, I'll toss this out to, to both of you, but Jen LeCamp, it's your turn. Uh, we just got, I just got off the phone with um, John Taylor of uh, Stanford mm-hmm. and Hoover Institute. And I mean, there's no, no better Fed guy than John Taylor. And mm-hmm. he, was, he said a couple of interesting things. One is he thinks the Taylor rule would put the Fed funds rate at 6%. Uh, and he said they're close, and the Fed's finally caught up, and they're doing a good job, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't think inflation has to be sticky forever. He thinks the Fed is now on the right track. Second point that Taylor said, and this is important, he thinks there could be a soft landing. He's not necessarily mm-hmm. in the recession camp. And again, you know, Taylor is a really smart guy and um, a very level-headed guy, even keel sort of guy. So I thought that was quite interesting. I talked about the inverted yield curve with him, uh, the drawdown in the money supply and so forth and so on. But he felt, uh, Jim LeCamp, he felt you could have a soft landing. You might. I mean, uh, if you, in many ways it looks like a 2016-style possibility of a soft landing, and I, I think there's two things that not enough people are talking about here that are holding the market afloat, but also the economy. One is there is a tremendous amount of fiscal stimulus still in the economy. You can talk all you want about the Fed tightening, but there is a tremendous amount of fiscal stimulus. I spoke with Robert Kaplan yesterday. They do all these surveys still. And he was telling me about how many businesses across how many states are still dealing with government contracts, new monies, and they have projects going on. And he felt like that would keep inflation higher. I think that, that that's a very real possibility, higher for longer and rates higher for longer. The second thing that I think is um, a, an aid 
to risk-taking is something that not enough people are talking about, and that is excess liquidity in the system. If you look at how much money the Fed has printed and how much is actually being used in the banking system and what's left over, excess liquidity is usually associated with risk-taking, and I think that's one of the reasons why the stock market is held afloat. And I don't want to rain on Stephanie's uh, parade. By the way, nice seeing you the other day, uh, Stephanie. But um, the leading indicators are down 14 months in a row. Uh, Manufacturing uh, CapEx plans are still pretty weak. The economic data, I would argue, and and I agree with your comments on housing, but the uh, economic data uh, outside of the service sector still looks pretty weak. Still looks pretty strong in the service sector, but outside of that, pretty weak. And so while I think a... Um, a soft landing is very possible here. I'm going to give it about a 50-50 odds. I still mm. think it's very possible we go into a recession. Well, the New York Fed yield curve model would suggest about a 70% chance of recession. I'm just saying this is what John Taylor was surmising. Um, it could be a triumph of hope over experience. I don't know. But why did the market drop 572 points this week, Steph? Uh, that's the reality that rates are staying higher for longer, not only in the U.S., but many parts of the world. And that's because inflation is problematic, as Jim just mentioned. Um, it's, you know, look at the U.S., we know the numbers are high in terms of inflation. 5.3 for the core, the core CPI X shelter um, is uh, two times the expectations and what the Fed wants. PMI, and it's all because of what Jim said about services. PMI is a 54.1 for services. That's gangbusters. Mm. But you also have the BOE. The BOE, their inflation is at 7.9%. That's too high. ECB, Turkey, Canada, Australia, all raising, and surprisingly so, in, uh, to the degree of what they did. Um, so no easing anytime soon. And then the recession talk gets louder and louder. And I think importantly, the reason why um, the market has held up this year, it's been driven by um, just a, 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 a big amount, a large amount of companies, like 10 stocks accounting for 90% of the returns year to date. Um, and that, and they mainly are growth and technology. And they benefited because people felt that that was going to pivot and they're not going to pivot. Mm-hmm. So that's why you saw the NASDAQ fall more than the S&P. And, and that's why you're seeing a broadening because people are saying, wait, there's other parts of the, the market that really haven't done very well year to date. Might as well look at some of them and take our gains in technology. So I think it's really that's the reality of, of, of the Fed and, and global central bankers. Jen LeCamp, uh, Janet Yellen, remember her, she <laughs> made a statement. Yeah, we can't get away from her. No, you've got her for a while. The whole gang's going to be here for another 18 months. Lord help us. Um, anyway, her she was saying that bank mergers – are going to continue this year. And that was a somewhat cryptic statement. I'm not sure what she was saying, except that bank mergers are going to continue. I don't know if that means the banking crisis, regionals, continues. Um, What do you make of that? I'm just looking. The KBW Bank Index fell 5% uh, this past week. Year-to-date, it's down 23%. So was she trying to tell us that these regional banks and smaller banks are going to have more trouble and that they're going to let bigger so. banks buy and them? I think, yeah, I think she is telling us that, and I think uh, this is a really, really bad thing. And the reason I do is, look, if you're a small business, small businesses hire 70% of people, and, and small businesses 
are if you look at one of the things driving the market here, Larry, it's that big businesses are doing more with less, less employees, more technology. That's tough for small businesses that hire seventy percent of people out there. And if you look at where they get their funding, it's from small banks, it's from local and regional banks. And look. Bigger is not necessarily better. Silicon Valley Bank was not a small bank. It was poorly run, poorly regulated, uh, poorly uh, their governance uh, internally was terrible. But the idea that uh, we'll have a better grip on this if if we just consolidate into a bunch of bigger banks is ludicrous, in my opinion. And it's really bad for uh, local businesses, really bad for the economy. Mm. Stephanie, would you ever buy bank stocks? <laughs> I Again? I own some banks. Um, I, I think that the regionals are, are going to struggle for a lot of reasons. M- m- number one, they're losing market share, hand over fist, to the large banks. Yep. So if I'm going to own a bank or financial, I, which I do, I would focus on the Bank of America's, um, the Morgan Stanley's. Um, I, I like Schwab a lot as well. Um, the regionals are also going to suffer, though, because they're going to have to raise capital. Uh, there's no question because the requirements, the, the capital requirements are going, they're going to go much, much higher after the failures. And so they're not going to be able to buy back stock. They're not going to be able to increase dividends. And that's going to be problematic. Now, I think the big banks are also going to have to increase their capital uh, requirements as well. But they have much stronger balance sheets and much stronger capital le- uh, liquidity ish- uh, and liquidity um, than than the smaller ones, and so maybe Yellen is is uh, is is right that we're going to see more mergers. She's going to have to let. And in fact, uh, uh, Brian Moynihan, uh, the CEO of Bank of America, said two weeks ago that he would love to buy some banks and get bigger if the Fed would let them. And it sounds like she might let them because what's the alternative? So to me, it's all about the capital. Uh, issues, and I will just say that we may have a couple more failures. That would not surprise me. Since 2009, we've had 513 banks uh, fail. Uh, mm-hmm. We have over 4,000 mm-hmm. banks in the in the in in the U.S. So keep it into perspective. Um, and so I think if you're going to own banks, I do think some of the big ones are very very cheap. Are they going to outperform given all these headlines? Probably not. Not in the short term. You know, 40 years ago, we had 25,000 banks. Oh, God. If you look, Larry, if you look 40, internationally. I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, that the number might not have been exactly 25,000, but it was well over 20,000. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just kind of interesting. And and the consolidation continues. Both of you are saying the consolidation will continue. You don't read about a lot of banks that go down, but they go down. I mean, we mm-hmm. just didn't need that many banks. That's all. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. If uh, you look internationally, Larry... Um, we we are a, a far better at utilizing local and regional banks than our international brethren are, and that's one of the reasons why the U.S. economy has always been more buoyant and more resilient and grows faster than other developed countries. And so, if if we go to more their model of more centralization, I, I, I have a very hard time believing that would be good for an economy that's already. I mean, look, one other point about the economy, the ratio of leading to coincident indicators is completely consistent with recession. Mm-hmm. So uh, while the market may be saying, hey, we, we could have a soft landing, there is definitely a, count, a strong counter-argument out there. 
Well, 14 straight declines in the LEI, that's a lot. All right, that's a lot. I mean, you combine that with an inverted yield curve, usually. I mean, it's a red flag, if nothing else. Anyway, I got to take a quick break here. We were with Stephanie Link is the Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors and Head of Investment Solutions. And Jim LeCamp is a Senior VP of Investments at Morgan Stanley. I wonder if Hunter Biden's thinking about buying a bank. That was a joke. Joke, joke, joke. Ha, ha, ha. I'm Cudlow. We'll take a quick break, and our stunned investors will be back with us. This is The Larry Cudlow Show. Now, back to The Larry Cudlow Show. We're doing some stock market work with Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Advisors and Head of Investment Solutions. And Jim LeCamp, Senior VP Investments at Morgan Stanley. You guys didn't like my Hunter Biden joke, huh? I thought it was pretty funny. I don't know. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, Stephanie Link, uh, is Goldman Sachs in trouble? Hmm. I no, mean, I don't, I don't think they're in, <laughs> I I read think stuff they're in trouble, about, but I think, I think their CEO is, is in trouble, for yeah, sure. Okay. When, when, yeah. you have, when you have rumors flying from the boardroom, uh, that they're not happy with his performance, which and no one's happy with his performance. However, it's not necessarily a Goldman Sachs specific thing. I think there are some things specific um, that they've they've done some real big miscues, uh, and that is not focus on uh, what Morgan Stanley did was was building out wealth management, um, and which which is where Jim works. But uh, I think that they really, um, I think he dropped the ball. But I mm. think the industry as a whole, look, I mean, capital markets have been in, in, under such stress for the mm. last several years. Uh, one of the reasons why I think Morgan Stanley is an interesting idea is really because, again, they have focused uh, into wealth management. That's a good business. Uh, but also I think capital markets, it's in the process of bottoming, right? We're mm. starting to hear a little bit more about IPOs. We're starting to hear a little bit more about trading getting less bad um, uh, and that sort of thing, underwriting, that sort of thing. So it's not in trouble per se, but I think if, I wouldn't be surprised to wake up one day and and the CEO is is uh, has been asked to leave. No, I get it. Um, it's just that Jim LeCamp, the one thing we don't need is for a large bank to go down. Yeah, I don't think they're they're in trouble. They uh, their, their cash flow in twenty two was about forty one bucks. That was way down from twenty one at seventy bucks. And but their earnings are are still projected to be pretty strong both this year and next. They do they do carry a lot of debt as a lot of financial institutions do, but I, I don't think they're in trouble in, in terms of going away or any sort of a, a meltdown there. I just think they're they're losing their relevancy in many areas. Huh. What's uh, for both of you, Jim LeCamp? Please, you first. Uh... Real fast, what's your favorite investment right now? Well, I think the market's overdone by almost any respect that you can do, and, and sentiment has finally uh, gotten uh, too positive instead of being too negative for a long period of time. So I think we have to shorten the leash, the leash uh, on our on our stock investments. But mm-hmm. in terms of what I like, um, I think energy is a really good long-term play here. Uh, I don't think it's going to move tomorrow or the next day, but I, uh, the, the rig count is almost down to zero. It's not zero, but it's way down, and they've been draining the strategic petroleum reserve. So I do like that. But beyond that, Larry, okay. I, I think we have to be a little defensive in the very short term. Steph, your favorite? 
Uh, I would say FedEx is my favorite. Um, I think that this new CEO is doing a, an amazing job in the face of very difficult uh, volume trends, but margins now they are, are, are up in the face of weaker weaker volumes, and they just beat earnings for the third quarter in a row, which they haven't done in like 25 years. I also like on the defensive side, Zimmer utilization rates are starting to pick up, and I like Las Vegas Sands for the recovery in China. Terrific stuff. Thanks to both of you. Great stuff. Appreciate it. Thanks. Stephanie Link of Hightower Investors, Jim LeCamp of Morgan Stanley. I'm Kudlow. So We're much. going to do some money in politics on the other side of the break with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to do some money in politics. We are trying to find Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. But the tables have turned. We have found Steve Moore. How about that? FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and WABC radio host of the great show More Money, which follows this show. All right, Steve, you got open field running. Um uh, there's a bunch of things to talk about, but I just want to get your take. Russia could be in the throes of a civil war. What do you think that means? Huh, you know, first of all, Russia is not an economic powerhouse by any means. You know, mm-hmm. remember back in the, the 70s, everybody thought Russia and the Soviet Union were going to take over the world. They're, pr- they're pretty much a third world country that has a lot of oil and gas. <laughs> and mm-hmm. if, it weren't for, if it weren't for their energy resources, they'd be really... Uh, almost economically irrelevant. So, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on Russia. I'll simply say this, and this is something we've talked about for the last three or four years on your show. If we want to uh, bring Russia to heel and uh, take on uh, Vladimir Putin, the best way to do that is produce as much oil and gas and coal mm-hmm. as we can here in the United States. It's that simple. This is not complicated. We're playing into the hands of Putin um, in terms of his attempt to get control of some of these Eastern European areas by, well, let me put it simply, his war machine is being funded by oil and gas, and we can take that away if we produce it here. That's simple. I think that's exactly right. I I think that's one of the unappreciated parts of this entire crazy Russia-Ukraine story. Uh, we don't know what's going on in Russia right now. Um, information is scarce. Rumors are strong. Putin's left Moscow on his way to St. Petersburg, but no one knows if any of that stuff is true. Former U, uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, who was an Obama ambassador, he's a very smart guy. I know him. I believe he's out at the Hoover Institution. He said they're in a civil war, but we don't know. There's not much we don't. I think your generic point is right, though. Producer I mean, you know, Russia, fuels. by the way, at one, oh, sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say Russia at one time, you know, was one of the most uh, economically prosperous countries, you know, back mm-hmm. in the 19th century before mm-hmm. the communists took over. And it's been a basket case ever since. And the people in Russia are practically poorer today than they were 100 years ago. You know, Steve, speaking of the energy policy, so this big headline yesterday and the day before, Ford Motor Company getting $9.2 billion worth of loans to build electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are a big loss leader in Ford. Basically, their gas-powered trucks 
are financing their EVs. The EVs are yeah. losing money. And because of the Inflation Reduction Act and other stuff, they got $9.2 billion. Now, Steve, compare that. What, 10 years ago, Solyndra got $400 million under yeah. Obama. All right. Didn't turn out so well. So we've gone from $400 million to $9.2 billion. What do you think of that? You know, you you raise a really important point here, which is that uh, because you know you're you're in my uh, friend Jared Bernstein. Remember him? He yes. used to yes. be on the, the old Cudlow CNBC yes. show with with me all the time. He mm. is now the uh, you know chief economist at the White House, and you know I like Jared personally, but in my opinion, he's not a very good economic. <laughs> he doesn't give very good economic advice. Mm. He was he was the the one who really remember he was the architect of the uh, of Obama stimulus plan which mm-hmm. cre- you know created the stim you know the cylinder crisis and so on and you know he was the one remember he said it was going to create all those shovel ready jobs and none of them ever appeared and now you know what's what's interesting about the Biden administration uh, economic agenda it's really just the Obama economic agenda times ten. Mm. You know, so instead of five hundred million dollars on these programs, they said we're going to spend five billion dollars. They mm. put an extra zero on all of these things, and they're not working any better now than they were in the era of Solyndra. It's like we've we've not learned anything from the mistakes of the Obama era. And people people have kind of forgotten, by the way, Larry, that the Obama years were terrible for the economy. Mm. There was there was no growth. We had three straight years of eight percent unemployment under Obama. Mm. It was barely like you're right. It was coming out of the financial meltdown, but basically they only had, as I recall, about 1.5% growth. Yep, and, and the, pretty, you know, know, unemployment remained really growth. high. There were no shovel-ready jobs. So Biden is really just a reprise of these policies. And, you know, it's funny, this weekend I was in the Chicago area uh, interviewing various people in manufacturing, some of them involved in the energy and the automotive industry. And they they were showing me pretty conclusive evidence that this stuff isn't going to work, that the, uh, there's no way we're going to be able to go to 50, 60, 70 percent electric vehicles. It's just it's just technologically impossible. We don't have the resources to do it. Uh, and it's not um, competitive. It's not at all competitive with gas. In fact, if there's another a new revolution in in transportation, it's not going to be electric vehicles. It'll be natural gas vehicles. Ah. But they're spending a fortune on this, okay? An absolute, I mean, think about it. $9 billion plus loan to one company, Ford Motor yep. Company. I mean, it's a veritable government bailout for EVs. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's not General Motors anymore. It's government motors. And yes. it's the same thing with Ford. And, and by the way, I, I hate to say this as an American, but the only con- uh, car company that really gets it is Toyota. And they're yes. getting so much backlash right now. Or they they say we want to continue to make the cars that people want to drive. What a concept. All right, let's take a break here. We'll see if we can fish out Liz Peak or not. Otherwise, Steve Moore and I are going to continue our conversation. When we come back, I want to think about the the politics of this craziness, the bribery, the racketeering, the extortion with Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and how's this going to affect the presidential race. We're talking to Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity and Freedom Works and the host of the radio show More Money right here on WABC Radio. Most of these stations listening in. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow.
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Steve Moore, Freedom Works, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and uh, WABC radio host of More Money following this show. Uh, Steve, question, you know, with all these new revelations, bribery and racketeering and extortion and... Um, Treasury reports, and the noose is really tightening around Joe Biden. I mean, now it's very clear Joe Biden knew all about Hunter Biden's business operations and so forth and so on. Here's my question, though, politically. Can Joe Joe Biden survive this as the Democratic candidate? That's really what is, you know, there may be impeachment hearings in the House, the evidence is mounting, et cetera, et cetera. But politically, in terms of the race, can he survive this? Boy, I sure hope so. (laughs) 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 I want to run run against him in 2024. I mean, I think he's he's by far the weakest. Well, uh, Kamala would probably be weaker than he is. But, you know, he's uh, not that, you know, mentally to be president. I don't think I, I just. But let's see if he can make it through the next year and a half, let alone another four years. So, uh, by the way, the rumors are swirling now that the, uh, a lot of these stories are now being actually um, leaked to the press by Democrats who want mm. Biden out. Mm-hmm. So uh, then the question, and I would say, you know, I would give the, make the odds less than 50-50 right now that, that Biden is going to be the nominee for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so then the question is, who do they look to? By the way, you know, now I guess the left was right about white privilege because you know, <laughs> the, 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 the slip, slap, slap on the wrist of, of uh, Hunter yes. Biden mm-hmm. is, I mean, people are just so outraged by this travesty of justice. So a lot of tang, uh, tangents on this, but I think that Biden is... Uh, you can stick a fork in through him right now. I mean, I just don't see him making it through this political scandal. And, you know, I'm very, I am very excited about the new high speed rail train that we're going to um, build across the ocean. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Yes. It's going to be the eighth marvel of the world. <laughs> 8,000 miles through Pacific, <laughs> on land in China, underneath the Indian Ocean. It's a fabulous right. story. Who's, I mean, <laughs> You got Gavin Newsom. You know, Arthur, Arthur's pal, Jared Polis in Colorado is a moderate Democrat. You've yep. got a big, big left winger in your home state of Illinois, uh, yep. Pritzker. Pritzker, yep. I mean, who's going to take him on? So I think at some point, um, you know, look at Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is is now polling at like 30, 35 percent. So mm. he's surging as just an alternative candidate. I'll tell you who I'm most nervous about uh, as a Republican is I am worried about Gavin Newsom. Uh, Newsom, I don't know how well you know. Have you met Gavin Newsom, Larry? I know him very well. I know him very well, personally. Yeah, and he's I've met him a couple times and had some, you know, lengthy conversations with him. I mean, he reminds me a lot of Bill Clinton. Yeah. He's a very charming guy. He's very dapper, uh, not likable, Mm -hmm. uh, but unlike uh, Bill Clinton, who I think was a true new Democrat, Democrat moderate. Uh, he's as liberal as the day is long. Uh, and he's going to have to run. In fact, I just wrote my column on this. It's, you know, Michael Dukakis ran on the Massachusetts miracle. What's uh, what's Bill Clinton? Gonna, I mean, what is uh, uh, Newsom going to run on the California calamity? <laughs> yes. You know? yes. I mean, California is a, a disaster right now. And what about your guy Pritzker in Illinois? 
Uh, he's too fat. <laughs> no, I mean, Pritzker, uh, I don't see it happening. I mean, you'll, it, there's only one place, one state that's in worse financial shape right now than California, and that's Illinois. Right. So I just don't see that happening. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of talk right now, a little chatter about um, the governor of Pennsylvania. I'm like Matt Shapiro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, yeah. And, uh, and then there's a lot of talk about the governor of Michigan. Oh. Uh um, Gretchen, like, Whitmer. Uh, yeah, Gretchen Whitmer. Whitmer. Yeah, Whitmer. Yeah. So we'll a far see, lefty. She is. Yeah, and so uh, and then you know what? Do you, what do you think, Larry? Do you think that Kamala could could be their nominee if Biden stumbles? No, I I think um, I think that I think she's dead meat. I think that yeah. the more Biden stumbles, right. I mean, look, sometime in the next six months, it's not out of the question. That the House Republicans will organize an impeachment. All right. The, right. The, the momentum of all this new evidence coming out is is so significant, and I think at that point, Steve, uh, everyone's going to cry, you know, yell out for Biden's head. He'll never. Yeah. It's just. I know that impeachment is is not the ultimate conviction in the Senate, I, and I don't even know if it gets to the Senate. I'm just saying they'll hold hearings, they'll have been in committee investigations. Uh, the question I have, though, what do Republicans do? What does Trump do? What does DeSantis do? How do they handle this? Well, I think they have to run uh, against the last four years. And, uh, you know, I would tell Donald Trump, just ask the American people, you know, are you better off than you were when I was president? Because mm-hmm. the answer to that so far is clearly no. The economy is doing you know, all right, right now it's it's uh, you know it's it's doing fair, but I think you had the statistic on your show the other day that what the last six quarters the economy's grown at one percent or something yeah, like that. Just, just over one. That's correct. That's pathetic. That's pathetic. Yeah. We should be going three times that faster. So I think they got to run on growth. There's a big divide in the Republican Party right now emerging on this kind of Republican industrial policy. Right. Uh, you know, you've got the people like um, the new governor. I mean, the senator from. Ohio and uh, Marco Rubio talking about, uh, you know, government partnerships with the private sector and things like that. And, and that that makes me worried. I don't want to I don't want to see that. But look, the Republicans have great candidates. I, I saw the other day um, uh, the uh, the speech that uh, the governor DeSantis gave. I thought he was spot on. I think he's very good on the economy. And uh, I, I think um, we've got really good candidates. I like Mike Pence a lot. I like. I like Tim Scott's messages. So I'm kind of more interested in what the Republicans are going to do than the Democrats right now. I mean, in a sense, you let Biden bury himself and the Democrats get buried along with him because they've all backed Biden. You think about it. Biden goes down on corruption charges. Republicans should take the high ground. Go for well, growth. What do you mean by that? Go I mean, for, so I'm not really pros- in favor of impeachment at this I, yeah, but in terms of the politics of this, you were mentioning that they want to try to impeach Biden. Why? Yeah. I mean, at yeah. this point, what's the point of that? If the, he's got a, you know, a year and a half left. I, I, you know, let's. My feeling about all this is I feel the same way about the re- ridiculous um, indictment of, of Donald Trump. But you know, we have a we have an election coming up. Let let the American people be the jury. Mm-hmm. But the evidence, you know, unlike the Trump evidence, which was made up and Hillary Clinton and all the rest of it, you've got pretty serious charges here. And 
Comer's committee, the oversight committee, I mean, I had, I had Nancy Mace on earlier in the show. Um, I mean, they're rolling towards an indictment of some kind. Now, they don't have all their ducks in line yet, but there's right. more information, more evidence that's going to be coming out, um, including bank account evidence and wire fraud evidence wow. and all this stuff. Well, so, if that's the case, you know, then you're exactly right. Then then there is there are real grounds for indictment, yeah. and, and it would mean almost treason, you know, because it yes. was with foreign agents, basically. Yes, yes. And that's exactly what it is. And, I mean, look, as I say, not all of the allegations have been proven, so we have a ways to go yet. But the way this is going, I mean, I think Biden's going to have to come out with either new arguments or something. But they're in total denial about it. And my thought was, because, of course, I agree with you about growth and prosperity and the economic agenda. In a sense, you know, let the House do what they're going to do. And the candidates should just run on, you know, prosperity. That's what they should run on. And you know, keep that up on tax. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Republicans keep that uh, taxes and regulations and spending and, you know, inflation and all the rest of it. I think that's probably still their best strategy. It, it is. There's no doubt about it. And it's, you know, a government that has grown so enormous in size and scope. There's a good book on this, by the way, called Godzilla. Yes, Godzilla. <laughs> over the last hundred years. Just in, but just look at the last five years, how much the the government has expanded, and, and it's just um, something we've never seen. Right now, the government spending at all levels, Larry, is 38% of GDP. Mm-hmm. 38%. It should be closer mm-hmm. to 28% of GDP. Mm-hmm. So we've got we – have, we have allowed the government, which is not a stimulant. It's a, it's the only thing the government stimulates is more government. Mm-hmm. And so I want Republicans to also run on a limited government yes. agenda. But also, how about supply-side tax cuts and deregulation? <laughs> you know, Casey Mulligan has a great study that has just come out, uh, and it shows that uh, huge increases in per-household costs of regulation under Obama mm. by about $3,000 per household. That's a lot. Then Trump comes in. It's negative 3000 under Trump, mm. around mm. that number. And mm. then under Biden, it's plus 5000 So it's, it's a hidden tax, this regulatory mm-hmm. burden of mm-hmm. Biden has added like a $5,000 tax onto every household in America. There's only one guy that's really talking tax cuts and deregulation on the campaign trail. His name starts with a T. With a P? With a T. Oh, Tim Scott? No. Se- <laughs> second guess. About? Trump. Uh, Trump, yeah. is, Trump, <laughs> right, Trump is... Trump is... You know... You know when well, he did you know, this, look, Trump, you know what he says every time, you know, you, you talk to him, he, he starts out by saying, I can do it again because I've done it already. Yeah. And that's a strong, that's a very yeah. strong argument. By the way, Trump had just come out with a position paper on impoundment. Remember impoundment? Oh, I love that. Yeah, yep. bring back impoundment. I love that. That's Agenda. President. Franklin yeah. Roosevelt used it. John F. Kennedy used the impoundment. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln used it. Yes, bring back the impoundment. Cancel spending we don't need. Biden's yeah. doing just the opposite. They got a trillion dollars of unspent COVID money. Instead mm. of impounding it, he wants to spend it on other things. Now I'm looking at this. Uh, Trump sends it's out these missives. Uh, using impoundment to slash yeah. waste, stop inflation, Love and it. crush the deep state. 
very simply, this means that if Congress provided more funding than was needed to run the government, the president could refuse to waste the extra funds and instead return the money to the general oh, treasury and maybe idea. even lower your taxes. All right? How about that? Did you tell them about that one, Larry? That's a great idea. I love that. I mean, it's a very interesting, you know, this goes all the way back to Richard Nixon. We've had so yeah. many battles between the president and Congress on impoundment, and Trump wants to be, I mean, he's got a big position paper on it. It's like four or five pages. I, I, you just made my day. I love that idea, and it could save hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, again, with COVID, we, they appropriated, uh, authorized hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars more money than they needed to deal with COVID. So give it mm. back. All right, folks, listen to Steve Moore, WABC Radio. More money coming up next on most of these same stations. Steve, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Okay. I'm Cudlow. We'll be back with you next weekend. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.